You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Audio clips in this presentation are from C-SPAN and an interview from the PBS show with Bill Moyers with former Senator Ernest Hollings. Yes, he was the old school, and it was an old school that should teach us a lesson or two. As a member of the Appropriations Committee for 41 years, he got us by example. 41 years. He came in 1971, became the chairman in 2009. Leading by example, he showed how we can accomplish great things by working together. He saw we could have a stronger country, a stronger economy, and yet have a sense of frugality. He treated the minority party with great respect. All have spoken about his legendary friendship with Senator Ted Stevens, another World War II hero. But now, as Senator Cochran was serving as the ranking member, he called him his vice chairman. And I know he was ready to reach out to Senator Shelby, who assumed the roles. He knew we needed the input of all senators to not only enact our bills, but to craft our bills. common ground, but to continue on, to insist on standing their ground and making a stand on principle alone. That, the challenge in reconciling those two points of view, the first on the role of government and secondly on the tactical way with which one governs, uh, has really presented the set of circumstances we're facing today. But as Jason and Trent both have said, there are ways in which to address it. There are easier ways, there are, there are somewhat more difficult ways, and then there are uh, ways that are almost impossible. But if you've read Walter Isaacson's new book, he quotes Larry Page as saying, "We, in order to be successful in almost anything, you have to have a healthy disregard for the impossible. And I think that's really what we've got to understand, is we've got to have a healthy disregard for those who just say, there's nothing we can do about this because it's just impossible. It isn't impossible. We can address it as a country. We've done so in the past, and I hope we can continue to demonstrate our capacity to do so going forward. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. This is Randall Wallace. We opened with former Senator Barbara Mikulski talking about the late Senator Daniel Inouye of Hawaii. We profiled him and his brother from Alaska, Senator Ted Stevens, in our last episode. The two men were, as Barbara Mikulski described, old school. Two men who believed in working together bipartisanly, finding common ground. It is, and that does not mean walking away from principle. It just means finding ways to keep the ball moving in the right direction. It's about finding solutions. And some solutions to our problems are easy. Common sense. Some are not. One of the reasons that Ted Stevens and Dan Inouye were able to become such good friends was fairly simple. It's a long way to Anchorage, Alaska and Honolulu, Hawaii from Washington, D.C. 
12 hours to be exact, on an airplane. They were among the last who could not go home immediately on Thursday. You can't build a relationship with people you don't know. And you'll find it much easier to demonize someone you don't know, too. Inouye and Stevens had a lot in common. Their states had a lot in common. And so they may have gravitated each other naturally. But being halfway around the world from home helps. Today, these people fly in on Tuesday, work Wednesday, and take off for home halfway through Thursday. It's a part-time job, it seems. One small solution that I think could change that came from a great book I read by Trent Lott and Tom Daschle. Both men are former leaders of their parties in the United States Senate. Both men have gone on to be leaders in a really good organization called the Bipartisan Policy Council. Their book, Crisis Point, is truly a must-read for anyone wanting to figure out how to move our country out of its current disastrous, paralyzed quandary. The solution is a simple one. It's a five-day work week for Congress. If they lived in D.C., they would have to get to know each other. Dashlin and Lot write, Natural allies will find each other, but others require the right environment, one characterized by trust and open communications. Former Congressman Bob Livingston said it pretty well. America is a full-time nation, and it demands a full-time Congress. Um, in inclusion, Newt Gingrich used to say inclusion means uh, inviting uh, Senator Daschle and Senator Lott over to help me bake the cake. Don't oh, just yeah. invite them in to, to oh, yeah. eat the cake. That's, that's inclusion. But right. anyway. One of the problems that, uh, that has evolved over the years, and I don't think you can put it on the, the back of any one person, is that more and more of the legislative process has been from the top down. Paul Ryan talks about that. The Freedom Caucus complains about, hey, we're getting edicts always in the top. We've got we to gotta find a way to bring it along from the bottom up. And, and the anvil upon which good legislation is hammered is the committees. Uh, I'm glad to see Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and, and now even Harry Reid, uh, who has resisted some, maybe going back to regular order. Send a bill to the subcommittee. Have a hearing. Do some investigation and see what's happening with what you've already passed. They don't have time now. Do, do they really do any oversight now? Not very much. Uh, certainly not in the Senate. But do the subcommittee. Go to the full committee. That's where the, the, the real work, where the rough, rough spots are sort of uh, sanded down. So when you get to the floor, you don't have 150 amendments. The work, A lot of the work has already been done. But it all, again, does go back to the relationship you were talking about. And I'll tell you one other story. When I first came to Washington in 1968, when I was 26, I was uh, the top aide to a Democrat congressman, Bill Calmer, chairman of the Rules Committee in the House of Representatives. Uh, that, at that time, they got like, what was it, Tom, four trips round, mm -hmm. four round trips home a year. They brought their families. They did the work up here. And on Thursday afternoons, they'd go into the Capitol in what they called the medicine room. And they would uh, drink cheap bourbon, old granddad or something like that. They'd smoke cigars and they'd play gin rummy, a card game I couldn't tell you how to play till this day. Who was in that room? Bill Calmer, conservative Democrat from Pascagoula. John McCormick, a liberal Democrat from Boston, Massachusetts. H. Allen Smith, a Republican from California. And, and, it, and it would be about uh, eight or ten like that. They knew each other. They loved each other. 
Did they agree philosophically? For a lot of reasons, no. Religion, region, all of it. But out of that came incredible pieces of legislation that made America what it became and what it is today. That's why I think we talk so much about relationships. That's invaluable. And the job is not in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or, you know, Sioux Falls. The job is here. And it involves, critically, the time to do the job. So we put a lot of emphasis on that in the recommendations in our book. If you are working a five-day work week, you know, like everybody else in America, you have time to go back to regular order. You have time to really meet in committees and in your subcommittees. You have time to iron out issues and make the government work. Building relationships and time, that's what makes government work. Then you don't have 50 to 100 amendments on every bill. Congress and its leadership have to consciously work to fix this issue. They have to make a conscious decision to change. But to be free to do this obvious solution, they need to address another much more complicated issue. Money. Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience. Don't take it personally, and don't fight the same old battles over and over again, plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to our page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing into 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. Money is an enormous issue. That is, I believe, bringing our government to a halt and doing it from several different directions. Earlier, we profiled Senator Strom Thurmond of my home state of South Carolina. For the first 32 years of my life, we used to say about politics in South Carolina that there was Strom Thurmond and Ernest Hollings and then everybody else. Senator Hollings was Thurmond's counterpart for 36 years. He was the longest-serving junior senator in all of American history and only got the title of senior senator in his final two years of a 38-year span of service in the U.S. Senate. Hollings was a former governor who helped take the trade schools in our state and turn them into an extraordinary technical college system. He was also the governor who integrated Clemson University and did so peaceably. Ernest Hollings passed away at 97 in 2019. 
but he was a very strong figure, even though he was often overshadowed by Strom Thurmond. Hollings gave a very interesting interview about a book he wrote called Making Government Work with Bill Moyers of PBS. His observations in that interview remain valid today. I wrote the book because I could see what was wrong. I was raising money. I wasn't running for re-election. As a senator in your last As term. As a senator the last two or three years, that's all I was doing, was raising money and uh, working for the campaign and for the party. The hardest working people in the world are the congressmen and senators. We work from early morning to late at night and all weekend and everything else, but we're working now not for the country, but for the campaign. What do you mean? All the time is fundraisers. All the time is money, 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 money. In 1998, 10 years ago, I ran and I had to raise eight and a half million. The record is there. Eight and a half million is 30,000 a week, every week for six years, each and every week for six years. Old uh, Dick Russell of Georgia, Former he senator. said, now a uh, senator's given a six-year term rather than a two-year term. He's given six years, the first two years to be a statesman, then the second uh, two years uh, to be a politician, his last two years a demagogue. <laughs> we, re you know, we, we use all six years to raise money. That's why I wrote the book, to try to get the government uh, off its fanny and cut out all the politics and let, let's work for the country. What do you mean team. it's not working? You say you can't get anything done in Washington anymore. What's not getting done? Legislation, anything meaningful. They fill up the tree, both sides. It's, it's nothing wrong with Harry, uh, Reid or, or Mitch McConnell. They, they're in good leaders and they're doing what the senators want done. Uh, and they're all smart senators and they're all responsible people. But they're playing the game and the media hadn't exposed. That's why I wrote it. I'm trying to the expose. Game? What's the game? The game is money. I got to get the money. Uh, the heck with constituents. I got to get contributors. I've talked to the senators. You, you ask them. They know they're not getting anything done. And they're grown men and they're conscientious women and everything else. Uh, they, they're outstanding. Uh, but they know uh, that all they're doing is on the money treadmill. Uh, that's all it is. You're right. When I first came to the Senate 40 years ago, Senator Mansfield, he was the majority leader there. Yes, sir. Reed. Had a vote every Monday morning to, to make get sure a quorum. To get a quorum. And we worked until 5 o'clock on Friday every That's week. right. We didn't go home on the weekends. We tried to get out Thursday afternoon or night or, or at least early Friday morning to go to the West Coast for fundraisers. That's why Hollywood and that's why Wall Street has got that much influence. That, that's, I'm not going to South Carolina. They got no money for a Democrat. <laughs> I have to travel all over the country. Years ago, you write, on Washington's birthday, a freshman senator would read the farewell address at 12 o'clock noon, and then we'd have votes in the afternoon. Now, now we've merged Lincoln's birthday with Washington's birthday and take 10 days off in February for fundraising. We have St. Patrick's Day, 10-day break for fundraising. Easter. Uh, Memorial Day, 4th of July, the month of August, Labor Day, uh, Yom Kippur, and Columbus Day. That's 10 days gone. And, and October, September, October, fundraise. Everything is attuned for the campaign, the hell with the country. A constant, permanent campaign. That's exactly what it is. Commercial television is the big winner in this because that's where so much of the money goes. Well, that's buy. right. The, the rich have got all the speech they want. The poor have got lockjaw. He, that he can't articulate uh, out onto the uh, television. 
and, and the poor can. And they have no a, voice. Yeah, and that's the trouble. They tell you don't go to waste time and don't go see people and everything. Get on television and, and get a little uh, tricky television and everything else like that. So uh, all these artists have got all kind of different ways and uh, different things like that to bring up and tricks to play. The clear message is money has a stranglehold on our democracy. You've got to untie that money knot and then begin, the government will begin to work. So you conclude, therefore, if we limit the money, Congress will have time to work for the country rather than the campaign. That's exactly right. They, they can talk to each other. They can deliberate. There's no, you fill up the tree with amendments. The leaders know the, the legislation is made down on K Street. They tell you when to vote, when they got the votes. Lobbyists then an, either leader brings it up. He knows where it's going. And it's not going anywhere, but he's going to get a vote to make them embarrassed about immigration or about energy or about subprime mortgages. The, 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 the votes are made uh, for the campaign. It's not to get anything done. Don't, don't miss, don't, bar humbug, forget about that, boy. They're not doing anything up here. And the senators and congressmen know it. What do you make of the fact, as you point out in your book, three days before the first presidential primary in Iowa, the New York Times listed the positions of all the candidates on eight important issues, not one of them on trade or outsourcing of jobs. That's right. And they came where we had in South Carolina since President George W. Bush has been in, we've lost 94,500 manufacturing, a net loss. We're getting small jobs in BMW in Spartanburg, but a net loss, and they never mentioned it in the early Democratic primary. Why? Because they, uh, they, they, they got to get the money. And, they, they, and who gives them the money? They, 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 Wall Street, uh, the banks, and, uh, and business. Yeah, you say presidents negotiate trade agreements not to open markets, but to protect corporate America's foreign investment. That's and how you that, see that, it. That's exactly. Oh, I know it. I mean, look at the Congress. Under Article 1, Section 8, the Congress shall regulate, not free. Regulate. Congress will regulate trade both domestic and foreign. And you say and in your book the Congress is not doing that. They can't do it because they got to get the money. You put in a trade bill and down on your head comes the Wall Street Journal and the big banks and the Na Business Roundtable and the National Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers are not for domestic. They're for Chinese and Indian manufacturer. Even the National Chamber of Commerce is not worried about Main Street Peoria, Illinois, Main Street, Shanghai. You see, Henry Ford built up the middle class along with organized labor. He said, I want the fellow making the car to be able to buy the car. So he doubled the minimum wage. He put in health care and retirement costs and everything else of that kind, benefits. And, and so we, we had a, a good working relationship between labor and uh, now all of these trade agreements are for the investors to protect their investment in China and India. But uh, forget about labor. You're right. Yeah. Your country and mine, that's the United States of America, is going out of business. Oh, yeah. What hadn't been outsourced is being bought with that cheap dollar. Vodafone has gone to the Germans. Uh, Bell Labs has gone to the French with all their research and everything else. Westinghouse Nuclear, with all of their research and technology and everything, has gone to Toshiba, Japan. And Anheuser-Busch, the Belgians, Anheuser-Busch is beholden to the stockholders. But 
nobody's beholden to the people other than their congressmen and senators, and they're not but, doing the job. But they're voting for NAFTA. They're voting for these uh, trade agreements. They're yeah, we've gone to an outright trade war and globalization, and that's where we AWOL. The way to get free trade is raise a barrier to a barrier and remove them both. Then you got free trade. But when you were chairman of this very powerful Commerce Committee here in the Senate, and you'd make these cases, yeah. they would call you protectionist. They would call you... Yeah, I'm, I'm a protectionist. Uh, you've got Social Security to protect you from the ravages of old age, uh, Medicare to protect you from ill health. You've got uh, food and drug, the clean air, the water we drink, the food we eat, uh, antitrust to protect the openness of the market and everything else. Before I open up Moyers Manufacturing, you got to have clean air, clean water, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, plant closing notice, parental leave, safe working place, safe machinery, antitrust. You can go to China for 58 cents an hour. They get you the plant. They own the workers. And you, you don't have any investment. You, you don't have to worry about it. You say all we need to do to make the country work is follow the lead of the forefathers to compete in globalization, to build the country's economy. Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison made sure the first bill to pass the Congress in its history on July 4th, 1789, was a protectionist bill, tariff bill on 60 articles, and that we financed the country's development with tariffs, uh, that's how we, be, that's the treasury building is the best building here in Washington. The best building in Charleston is, is the custom house. The best building in Brooklyn is the custom house. Treasury had the money. Teddy Roosevelt said, thank God I'm not a free trader. Uh, old uh, Lincoln, everybody says I'm either Roosevelt, I'm a Lincoln Republican. He was a big protectionist. Oh, he raised uh, tariffs. Uh, they were going to build a transcontinental railroad under uh, Abraham Lincoln. And they said, we can get the steel cheap from England. He said, ah, wait a minute. We're going to build our own steel mills, and then we'll have not only a steel capacity, but we'll have the railroad. And so uh, he, he was a builder. Everybody was a builder. Eisenhower, he protected uh, oil. Uh, Jack Kennedy, I went to him. He protected uh, textiles. Ronald Reagan... He protected computers and Harley Davidson. He saved it. I saw George W. the other day about three weeks or a month ago. He was at the Harley Davidson plant, but protectionism saved it. That's why they were making money at Harley Davidson. No, That's he, because he got voluntary restraint. Reagan got on steel, computers, uh, machine tools. And, and automobiles. He got voluntary straight, and that's the only way to do it. Sober up. Take Hollings is complaining about having to raise eight and a half million to defend his Senate seat here in South Carolina. In 2020, Lindsey Graham was challenged by Jamie Harrison, and they raised and spent over 180 million dollars. Harrison raised 107, and Graham north of 74 million. A staggering sum. In the country that produced great presidents like Harry Truman. Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton will have created a system where the middle-class people like those won't be able to do that anymore. Only the wealthy, by and large, will be able to serve when a Senate race costs north of $100 million. We also now have a national media involved in trying to ensure that a candidate they want wins the election. You, you both have mentioned money, you both have mentioned the media, and of yeah. course, you know, when, when, when I was elected to Congress in 1994, you know, Blackberry was a fruit. 
And, <laughs> you know, of course, today everybody's got, you know, iPhones and, and instant media, Instagrams, tweeting, um, you know, Internet, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and it, I think something that's contributed to this, and you all spoke to this in your book as well, about how it, we, can, we, can, we can go for the next month and, and never talk to anybody that disagrees with us. And, and I think we, we tend to, in my opinion, we tend to become very, very short-sighted. And even the press today with the cable network of 300-plus of channels, you can listen to news shows that only agrees with me or radio that yeah. ag- ag- agrees with me. And, and I find that people don't watch news shows today or current affairs shows looking for the truth, many watch them to have my opinions affirmed. Well, my opinion is the one that's the truth, I presume. (laughs) I watch Fox 24-7, and yet my partner, John Bro, watches MSNBC 24-7. Now, we at least talk to each other and uh, and agree to disagree sometimes, but yeah, that's the culture has changed so much in the media standpoint. But I would say to Mance, JC, is that the media used to be the referee, and now they're the participants. Right, I, I noted that. Yeah, and uh, and I really think that's something that uh, we still haven't adjusted to. You know, there's no line any longer between objective and subjective. It's all one. And what and, do they like to coverage? They like to cover conflict. I mean, getting a result and getting an agreement is, is so, you know, it's just not sexy. But if you can have two candidates like Trump and Cruz going after each other, the other guys on the platform are chopped liver because that's where the focus is. Yeah, they're, they're, they're part of plans. Yeah. So what would you do about the power of the press in our society today? Or t- tell them, that, by gosh, uh, uh, tell the truth. That, 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 you know the debate between Walter Lippmann and John Dewey. And Walter Lippmann said, what we ought to do is get the experts in finance and defense and education and the various elements of government and let them determine the country's needs and give it to the Congress and let them pass it. John Dewey, the educator, said, no, no, let the free press report truth to the American people and the needs will be reflected in their congressmen and senators in Washington. And he was right but they're not telling the truth anymore. They all are doing the headlines rather than headway. They're all getting by with uh, perceptions. They're all getting by with posted politics. Uh, they're not talking about the needs. The country is ready, willing, and able to work. The government's not working. The media has gotten muddled to the point that the average consumer has no longer can tell the difference between straight reporting and opinion. In the old days, it was a clearly defined line. You also have media outlets that masquerade as straight reporting that are clearly not. That helps drive situations and divisions in our our society. But we in the public need to do our part too. A couple of years ago, during the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearings, as the situation turned into a circus, two senators did exactly what we have been advocating that we need more of. They were two senators who were good friends, Jeff Flake, a Republican from Arizona, and Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware. The two men came up with a compromise that allowed an extra week of FBI investigations to remove the doubts uh, for, for everyone prior to the confirmation vote. They stepped up and brought us back from jumping off a very divisive cliff as a nation. 
But during an interview with Scott Pelley of CBS News at 60 Minutes, uh, he asked Senator Flake a very good question. Could you have done this if you were running for re-election? Jeff Flake's answer has stuck with me. No, he answered. There is no value in reaching across the aisle. What a sad commentary on the state of our nation. Relationships, friendships, the ability to trust one another, hash out our differences, find solutions, or, or that's something our leaders have been doing since 1776. But if you do it now, reach out, behave civilly, and try to be bipartisan in your friendships. There's not only no value in it, there is a very high price you will pay for it, and it's because us in the public are not holding these people accountable for anything and are actually cheering on our sides and not making it effective to be a person who reaches out to one side or the other and tries to find common ground in a deal. Mr. Chairman, I just want to thank you. Uh, this has been one of the best set of hearings that I've participated in. And I want to thank you for your fairness and the opportunity of going back and forth. It leaves one with a lot of hopes, a lot of questions, and even some ideas, perhaps some good bipartisan legislation thank we you. can put together to make this great country even better. So thank you thank so you. much for your leadership. Well, one, that means a lot to me, and, and I know we have very different views about the judge and whether we should be doing this or not. But having said all that, to my Democratic colleagues, um, you have challenged the judge, you've challenged us, and I accept those challenges as being sincere and not personal. Uh, I don't think anybody crossed the line with the judge in terms of trying to demean her as a person. Uh, the people on my side, thank you very much for being involved and, you know, telling our side of the story and asking the judge uh, about your concerns. Uh, one thing we can tell you, as long as there's <clears throat> Senator Grassley, there'll be a question about ethanol. Uh, to Senator Feinstein, you're a joy to work with. Uh, to our staffs, I know this has been very hard, a lot of pressure on both sides. To the people who set up the room, thank you. Uh, to the witnesses who chose to participate today, as private citizens, thank you. To the police officers who made this go well, thank you. Uh, to my staff who bore the brunt of this, I really do thank you. This simple civil act cost a liberal trailblazing political giant her position as the ranking member of the Senate Judicial Committee. She was actually publicly defended more strongly by Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz than by Dick Durbin, Hazy Murano, Chris Coons, and Chuck Schumer, her Democratic colleagues. She was then absolutely savaged by the New Yorker magazine in what can only be described as a massive political hit job. The New Yorker reported that Feinstein was suffering from severe short-term memory loss. All of the claims coming from anonymous sources in this story, written by the same reporter, Jane Meyer, who was a co-author of a story about the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, a couple of years ago, that he had exposed himself to a woman in college. However, they failed to mention that their story, that in their story, that the woman involved did not quite remember essential details of the story. The main witness had heard it from somebody else, and when they tracked down the person who, who was the source of the story, they didn't remember the situation ever happening at all. While researching this story myself for this podcast, I found a video 
from the recent final sessions of the Senate. Every Senate session ends with retiring senators coming to the floor to deliver farewell speeches. This year, Tennessee Republican Lamar Alexander is retiring. He is a Republican, and he is a very good friend with Senator Dianne Feinstein. Another classic example of the fading old school of politics at work from two good and effective lawmakers. Senator Feinstein came to the floor in the middle of this savage attack from a Democratic leading media source, if you can believe that, to praise her friend Lamar Alexander, a Republican. Rest assured, she'll probably catch hell for that too. But judge for yourself her mental capacity. I rise today to honor Senator Lamar Alexander, a friend and a colleague who served in this body for some 18 years now. I've had the pleasure of serving with this senator on both the Rules Committee and the Appropriations Committee, and we sat next to each other as chairman or ranking member on two appropriations subcommittees, first Interior and Energy and Water, and we've done that since 2009. It has been through these experiences that I truly have come to appreciate Senator Alexander's fairness, his interest in solving problems, and his bipartisanship. And most of all, Lamar, I so appreciate your friendship and the time we've had to talk together. I do believe that the Senate is going to be diminished by the absence of this senator. Working closely as chair and ranking member of the Energy and Water Subcommittee, we've always been able to find agreement on the annual appropriations bill. That's because we shared a willingness to find common ground, and that's no small thing. We've consistently held comprehensive subcommittee hearings on a wide range of issues, from nuclear power and nuclear waste, to dam safety, to devastating droughts in the West, and the future of renewable energy. We were also often among the first, if not the first, subcommittee to negotiate our bill, draft it, and get it marked up by the full committee. And that includes four years of record level funding for clean energy, the national laboratories, supercomputing, and water projects. The focus has always been on a fair, open process that seeks compromise. And that track record speaks to the value we place on the process. But more than anything, Senator Alexander will be remembered as someone who dedicated his life to serving the people of Tennessee. Between his eight years as governor and 16 years as a senator, he served longer than any Tennessean who has held both jobs. And that doesn't include the two years he served as President George H.W. Bush's Secretary of Education. His priorities have always been of great importance to Tennessee, whether the Army Corps of Engineers funding for inland waters, particularly his favorite, Chickamauga. This is the first time I ever heard the word pronounced. Chickamauga Lock he often talks about in our hearings, or updating the way musicians are paid for their work. He's also led efforts to pass every Student Succeeds Act in 2015, which President Obama called 
a, quote, Christmas miracle, end quote. And as we hear promising news about coronavirus vaccines, we're reminded of the 21st Century Cures Act. <clears throat> that is Senator uh, Alexander's landmark 2016 bill that streamlined the drug and device approval process to bring treatments to market faster. He has a long record of work he can be proud of. Lamar, you've been a great colleague and a dear friend all these years in the Senate. I'm proud of what we've achieved together. I'll miss our dinners together and sitting next to you on the dais. I hope you enjoy a well-earned retirement with Honey and your beautiful family. Thank you so much for your service. I've had a long and serious talk with Senator Feinstein. That's all I'm going to say about it right now, said Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Boy, that clears that up, doesn't it? Nice to know you have the back of your most senior senator. Lindsey Graham, however, had this to say about the ranking member of the, his judicial committee. So they literally ran Diane Feinstein, who's a great person, out of her job because she said something nice about me. She dared to hug me, and look what's happening to her, Graham added. Later, at the committee's final meeting of 2020, Graham said in front of all of his colleagues, let's put it this way, Senator Feinstein is not the problem. She is the solution. Those who find fault with her or some of her gestures that Senator Feinstein made, you're the problem, not her. Never have truer words ever been spoken. Feinstein herself, most likely more hurt by her party's treatment than mad, said simply, I do work hard, I have good staff, I think I am productive, and I represent the people of California as well as I possibly can. What a shameful moment for our country. And to those responsible for attempting to smear Senator Feinstein like this, it's just another example of the shameful embarrassment our political leadership has become. There actually needs to be a price for this type of behavior. If we continue to allow this type of shameless smearing of our political figures, when they try to behave civilly and set a good example for all of us to follow, then we get the leadership and dysfunction we deserve. Richard Nixon, one of the most controversial and polarizing figures in all of American history. But still, he spoke to the heart of a troubled nation. We cannot learn from one another until we stop shouting at one another, until we speak quietly enough so that our words can be heard as well as our voices. And brought down by scandal. Others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then, you destroy yourself. But still, he left his mark on the nation. From issues ranging from the environment to cancer research to opening China and peace in Vietnam, all while having both houses of Congress in the opposition hands. Next time on Bridging the Political Gap.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.